Hello, welcome to This is Sober. I'm Molly Dash, your host and sober coach. And today I am super excited to talk to Christy Sloan. She is a healthcare professional. She's a BSN, RN, certified wellness coach, yoga teacher, and is currently working towards board certification as a nurse coach and holistic coach with the Integrative Nurse Coach Academy. As a professional woman in recovery from alcohol abuse, she passionately promotes health and healing with integrative and holistic approaches. She advocates for people to stop asking whether or not they're an alcoholic and instead ask, is alcohol serving my life? Welcome to the show, Christy. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, definitely. Um, Like I was chatting with you before we started recording, I don't see or hear a lot of healthcare professionals talking about alcohol and like the stigma, the problems it causes in our lives. Like, I feel like we're not focusing on that so much. So I'm so glad to have you here and have you advocate for sobriety. Um, Why don't you just tell everybody a little bit about yourself, your sober journey and what you're doing? Sure. Yeah. So the first time I got sober was almost 15 years ago. And like many people that try and give up drinking, it took a few times for it to uh, stick long-term, but I was, the first time I quit, I was like 26 years old. And I just recognized that I didn't like who I was becoming. You know, when I was younger, I had these big dreams for my life. And because I was stuck in this pattern of drinking, I wasn't going anywhere. I was stuck. I didn't like who I was. I didn't like what I was doing. And I knew I wanted to make a change. So 26 is pretty young. That's pretty awesome that you recognize that so early. Yeah. I feel really fortunate that I had that insight because I know so many people, it takes, it takes a while for people to recognize that things aren't like they want them or that they can deserve or that they can live a better life or that they deserve a better life. But I had a pretty strong sense of that early on. And I had some people in my family that were abusing alcohol, that were alcoholics. And I knew that I really didn't want to follow down that path. So I decided to get sober and um, I made it a year on my own. And I like to say that I kind of was white knuckling sobriety because even though I I was sober, it wasn't great. Um, Yeah. I hadn't dealt with any of the internal stuff that drove me to drink. And I, I was kind of just uh, a control freak, really. I was trying so hard to manage my life and I worked really hard. That's how I kind of coped. I switched from drinking to working really hard. And, um, at the end of that year is when I found out uh, my dad had a terminal cancer diagnosis. So at that point, um, I started drinking again because I just really didn't have any healthy coping skills. And during the year that I was sober, I also became a mom for the first time. So at the point that I quit it, the point that I started drinking again, my daughter was about six months old and it was a really really challenging time of my life because I was a new mom. And then also I was watching my dad die. And 
my family, that's kind of how we coped together too, as we'd come together. My my dad's wife, um, she's from a large family, so we'd all get together and drink, and that's how we were managing. So, yeah, <laughs> I'm thinking back at that time, and it was just like there was just so much chaos going on, and my heart was just so full of sadness because, you know, I'd had all of the the pain and trauma that led me to drink in the first place. And now I'm watching my dad and I had no idea how to live a healthy life. I wanted it so badly, especially being a new mom. And then um, I think it's important to note too, that my dad's cancer um, diagnosis, he had esophageal cancer. So the number one and number two reasons that you develop those cancer, that type of cancer are from smoking and drinking. Yeah. So I really felt like, you know, if I didn't make some changes in my life, my dad was 56 years old when he passed away that oh my god, it wasn't going to, that I could easily have that life if I didn't make some changes. So um, my dad passed away on a Wednesday and the Monday before he passed away, I went to my first 12-step meeting and I felt like at that time, you know, it was really kind of like divine intervention. I had a lot of pride around 12, like going to 12-step meetings. I I bargained with uh, God and was like, I'll do anything, but don't make me do anything that is involved <laughs> with like the church or 12-step because that was kind of part of some some of the painful stuff from my childhood too. Um, but I went to my 12-step meeting and it was the most wonderful experience. I went to a 12-step meeting called Celebrate Recovery. So it's a faith-based Christian program. And it really helped me heal in so many different levels. It helped definitely helped with healing some spiritual wounds that I had. And uh, I, I met wonderful people there um, that really supported me and loved me in a way that I had never experienced before. So I'm so grateful that, you know, I reached that point of desperation because it forced me to get over myself and opened me up to an incredible experience. Your story is very similar to mine because I went a year without drinking, literally just white knuckling it. I did have, I did force myself to go to AA. Cause I was like you, I was like, I don't want to go to church. I don't want to go to AA, but that was like the only option, you know, I didn't know about all of these like amazing online things that you can be a part of these communities. So I went to AA too. And then shortly after I hit a year some kind of, you know, not the same thing. I wasn't losing a parent, um, like you, but I started, you know, I kind of slipped back and I, I relapsed. And so I think it's interesting that you pointed out that you didn't, you weren't tackling the reason, the root of your drinking during that first year. And that's why it was so easy for you to just kind of fall back into that pattern. So I kind of want you to talk about that. Like, what does that mean that you weren't facing the root? What did that look like for you? Um, once you were able to kind of face that head on? Yeah, I don't, I don't know that I 
I had the capacity to to even look at myself um, when I first quit drinking. Like I just, I knew I wanted to change, but I was so scared to actually change. Like what, who would I even be if I wasn't uh, a party girl or, you know, I had this whole concept of myself and just giving up drinking felt huge. And so if I had to give up anything else, that just felt really scary. So I wasn't, I just wasn't willing to go in yet. I just thought if I could change things on like a surface level, that that would be enough. <laughs> right. Just and, like give up the drinking, but not really come to terms with, I will never drink again. Like I am a non-drinker now. Yeah. And I, I was really really hung up on whether or not I was an alcoholic. And so I think that that's part of my mission, right? Is, um, or part of what I really like to talk about is it's, it's less important to answer that question, right? Am I an alcoholic? Because it was clear that alcohol wasn't serving my life. And I wrestled with, am I an alcoholic for a really long time? Because I had people in my life that were clearly alcoholics and I would compare myself to them. And compared to those other people, I didn't really have a problem. And I had people also in my life tell me, I don't think you really have a problem with drinking. You just need to learn how to control it. So other people were minimizing my problem. Yeah. And I knew it was a problem. And yeah, I don't know that that really answers your question, but I think I just was wrestling with so much that first year, like trying to figure out really, did I have a problem? And then you know, going back to it, that's when well, I, I have think the absolute yeah. clarity that yes, I do have a problem. <laughs> well, I think it's really important that we switch the context of, am I an alcoholic to, is alcohol serving me? Because just like you did, and so many other people, we compare ourselves to what society portrays as an alcoholic, right? Mm-hmm. Like people that can't hold a job or maybe homeless, or they wake up and they can't even like function without a drink. And it's really dangerous when you start doing that, when you start comparing yourself, because it's a slippery slope, whether you feel like you're that person now or not, you know, who's to say that in a couple weeks or a couple months or a couple years, that's who you're going to be. So really flipping the script and saying, is it serving me? That's the real question. So I love that. Yeah. Yes. And I love um, what you just touched on. You know, I didn't make all of the bad choices that made me feel like a terrible person all at once, right? It was a slippery slope. Like you said, it was, I had some, some standards that I, that I wanted for myself and some dreams that I wanted from my, um, you know, for my life. And then slowly with alcohol and then also drug use, you know, I, the standards that I had dissolved. And then at a certain point I looked at my life and I had no standards, you know, everything that I wanted for myself or everything that I said, I'll never do that. And then I did it, you know, those things started to pile up and that's what I wasn't willing to face when I first got sober. You know, I, I wanted just to quit drinking and have that solve my problem. I didn't want to look at all of the problems that my drinking had created. 
Yeah. I feel like that's a, one of the biggest blockers for people that do face this reality that alcohol is not serving them is thinking about who am I going to be once I give up drinking? And it's like the most terrifying, debilitating, like you're just feel crippled and helpless and hopeless. And just taking that first step is like trying to cross cross a gorge or the grand canyon when in reality you know once you do it you're like oh well that wasn't so bad right but it's that first step that is the scariest oh my god it's so terrifying and there's so many people that are just like i don't think i can do it yeah it is terrifying and you know i think as human beings i think um, I've heard it said that we have like three main fears that control our life and um, loss of identity, loss of community. And I can't remember what the other one is, but you know, when you, when you're looking at giving up alcohol, you're definitely faced with loss of identity. Like, who am I going to yeah. be if I'm not a drinker? Um, and then loss of community, because you right. think about your social network, your family, your, you know, you people you work with, yeah, it all changes when you give up alcohol, but you don't realize, you can't realize how wonderful the change is until you start to experience the other side of it. Exactly. Exactly. So you are an active healthcare professional. So you work with patients on a day-to-day basis. I find it interesting. Like when I go into the doctor, there's a little checkbox on the intake form, you know, maybe there's a checkbox in the intake form. Like, do you drink alcohol when it's such a huge deal? And then if you get to like the tobacco part, do you, yes. How much, how frequently, you know, how many packs a day, blah, blah, blah. Like, why is that? Can you like help me understand why the healthcare industry in general is not focusing on alcohol? Like I feel like it should be. Yeah. I, I don't have a good answer for that because alcohol, seriously, it's so destructive. And I heard somebody else say that if alcohol was introduced into society today, if we'd never had alcohol up until today, and then it was introduced, it would immediately become illegal because of how destructive it is to um, person, to community. You know, it's one of the things that I think is really understated in alcohol use, chronic alcohol use, is how dangerous even abruptly quitting alcohol is if you have developed a, a dependence. Because you can die from alcohol withdrawal. And I didn't know that until after I became a nurse. And um, I don't think that that's really talked about a lot. And I don't think that people really know how severely alcohol can, um, alcohol withdrawal can be. So I I always think that that's interesting too. Like we have people come into, I work in a small rural hospital and we'll have people come in for detoxing Mm. and we give them benzodiazepines and um, we taper them off of alcohol over days. And so really the first like 24 hours aren't that bad. It's actually 
um, beyond the 24 hour mark, when the alcohol is starting to leave the system, that you're at greater risk for seizures and um, in the hospital setting, that's why we medicate so that people don't experience seizures, but you can have hallucinations, sweating, like people are really sick. And I think what's unfortunate is a lot of times they go through this detox process, but then we don't have a great plan for them to move forward. You know, they, they start to feel better because their detox is over and then they kind of go back to the same thing. So a lot of times we see the same people over and over going through the detox process and not having any success outside of the hospital with their recovery. Yeah. That's really unfortunate. It is. It's really sad. And a lot of these people are young, you know, and it just breaks my heart. And, um, a lot of times in our professional education, we're, we're taught not to share personal things, but in these, in these times, I will share with people a little bit of my story. Just want them to know that just because they are where they're at, they're still a person, they still matter, and that there is hope for them to change. And yeah, I don't I know why. <laughs> I don't know why we don't have better systems in place to help people recover from alcohol. And I don't know why that you know, I think that part of the reason that there's so much stigma or maybe not enough, um, not enough data collection (laughs) is because like, you know, if you think about like my first year in, uh, sobriety, I wasn't willing to look at the problem. Right. And there's so many people that are struggling with alcohol. If you're even a medical professional, and you're handing out these forms that says uh, how, like, explain to me your alcohol use, and then you're struggling with that, you know, I don't know. That could be an element too. It's just like, maybe at a society level, we're not willing to look at how dramatically alcohol impacts us as as a culture and a society. Yeah. And I think it also goes back to education, right? Like in in, tr- in your training, do they go over that? Like, do they train you on how to help somebody that may have alcohol dependence? Really in nursing school, we learn so much in such a short period of time that everything we learn is a really, um, a, a really basic level. Um, and the things that we go in depth on are more geared towards like um, chronic diseases that are like related to the heart or, you know, um, more processes that are systemic so that we are, we're learning how the whole body works, but specific disease processes, we don't go really in depth on unless it's like you know, cardiac related or, um, like neurology, like if people are going to have a stroke. So, um, like alcoholism, I don't remember. Nothing is standing out to me in my education specifically about alcohol. So 
people typically once they once they graduate from nursing school if they have an area that they're passionate about then they go into different specialties and so there's um psychiatric nursing is a specialty that would typically work with people that are struggling with substance abuse or psychiatric issues yeah that makes Mm -hmm. sense i mean like you said, there's just so much material to cover that they can't just focus on one particular thing. They want you to be well-rounded and able to pinpoint specific, like Mm -hmm. big triggers or whatnot. But um, yeah, so let's talk about specific health concerns. So what in, in some of my other episodes, we've talked about, you know, for women specifically, how it impacts like hormones and Um, we've talked about cancers. So there's like six cancers that are directly caused from alcohol drinking. One of them being esophageal cancer, Mm -hmm. a previous, um, guest of mine, she was diagnosed with esophageal cancer for drinking. Um, so I feel like that's a big one. Um, I just feel like anybody that pays attention to what's on TV or in the news or social media, I feel like we're kind of a health conscious society, but alcohol doesn't play a part in that, you know, like you could even go to, I've seen some retreats, some like wellness retreats and on opening day, they're serving wine or champagne. And it's like, well, how is that playing a part in wellness? Um, (laughs) So I'm just, I'm just concerned. Sorry. I'm kind of like all over the place right now, but let's talk about like specific health concerns. So anything outside of that, that you're aware of, um, or that you've seen, maybe you've experienced, um, with, with some of your patients. Yeah. Um, okay. So specific health concerns. I just think like in general, our society is our individuals in our society are not functioning well. Anxiety is at an all-time high and people have no idea how to manage it at a at like a holistic level. You know, one of the things that I think is is really problematic with allopathic medicine is that we look at bodies as systems. We don't look at inter- at people as integrated and whole beings, right? We say, if you have a heart problem, we're going to send you to a cardiologist. If you have issues with your lungs, you're going to go to a pulmonologist. If you have um, diabetes or hormone problems, we're going to send you to an endocrinologist. And so we feel like we're disconnected and that um, our problem with drinking isn't going to impact our whole our whole body being right. And I've even heard people's of people's physicians, um, saying like, Oh, well, have you tried to have a glass of red wine at the end of the night to help you relax? And I, I haven't personally experienced that, but I have heard that that's happened. And so, you know, what does that, what does that say to the person who is in the room looking for some real help and the help that they're being offered is either alcohol or maybe it's a prescription drug and they 
they leave with that advice, but really that's just putting um, a mask or a bandaid on a whole person issue, right? Yeah. And not even a bandaid, like they could just be exacerbating the problem. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So one of the things that, that I really am passionate about is, is holistic health. And, um, as a, a student at the integrative nurse coach Academy, we are really trying to make a shift in nursing and bring back the holistic perspective and teach people how to be agents in their own health and advocates for their own health, because we've really done a poor job and really disempowered people in the medical system. So we're trying to shift that paradigm to help people get out of the sick care model and back into healthcare. And um, one of the things that I do in coaching sessions is a mindfulness activity each time because it helps people quiet their mind for just a moment and listen to their, that inner voice that knows exactly what that person needs. And a lot of times people go into the doctor's office knowing what they need, but that they share that and maybe it's just not uh, validated or the doctor is not understanding or doesn't have the knowledge. And I, and I don't mean to throw physicians under the bus because they're just not educated in those things either. They just, um, unless they've done additional specialty training, they're not aware or they're not um, educated on holistic practices. So it's not their fault, but um, we're definitely seeing the results of the lack of having that education is, is producing, right? That's really cool. I love the mindfulness practice. Um, Tell me a little bit more about how you're taking a holistic approach with some of your clients. Yeah, I, I'm really passionate about, I'm a multi-passionate person, but like holistic whole body integrative health is something and, and, and mind body medicine, those things are really fascinating to me. So I, I like to share those things with um, my clients. So we talk a lot about nutrition and how, how food can actually impact you at a cellular level, which when you think about that is kind of mind blowing, right? Like, I think intuitively we, we, when we think about it, we're like, yeah, that makes sense. But to really think about how the food that you're eating can impact your cells, that's really powerful. And also your thoughts can impact your cells. Your thoughts can turn on and turn off um, genes that cause disease. So we we have so much power available to us and we we don't realize, you know, how simple changes in our lives can make huge, huge differences, huge shifts for us. And so that's what I like to really teach my clients. And you know, oftentimes we think when we're when we're trying to change our lives, uh, we get overwhelmed by the amount of change that we need to make, and also we think that we can handle more change than we actually can. So one of the things that I like to 
to teach my clients is, or to ask my clients to do is to look for like the low hanging fruit. Like what's one thing that you could do for yourself over the next week that seems insignificant, but could actually have a really great dramatic impact on your health. Like what if you only focused on drinking water, the, the right amount of water for you over the next seven days? How would that make you feel in your day-to-day life? And then, you know, more energized, um, just overall, like at the end of the day, you're not exhausted. So then you have energy at the end of the day to make yourself a better meal. And then you have more energy to spend time with your kids or whatever you want to do at the end of the day. Those things have a, a snowball effect instead of like setting these big, huge goals and then not achieving them or feeling like, oh, you know, like I'm a failure because I didn't do what I said I was going to do. If you can just focus on small shifts, that's what brings the change. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. 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 Because I feel like when you give up drinking and this was told to me in one particular AA meeting like just focus on the drinking, just focus on one day at a time, you know, don't try to make big changes. Don't like start dating a new person or quit your job or things like that. But there are certain people and I am definitely one of them. When I want to change something, I'm like, Ooh, I want to do this and this and this and this and this. But then, like you said, what happens is maybe you stop focusing so much on um, the drinking, the water. And then you're like, Oh, I failed at that. And then the next thing, you know, you stopped taking your dog for a walk in the evening and then you just feel like a complete failure. So I love focusing on just one thing at a time, you know, do it for like two or three months every day until it becomes a routine and then introduce something else small. I love that. That's such a good advice. Tell me a little bit more about your personal holistic care. So after you got sober the second time and you started, you know, tackling some, some demons that were causing you to drink, you know, how did you take a look at your body at maybe the cellular level, as you say, Mm -hmm. and start taking care of yourself better? Yeah, I, so I went I was a part of that 12 step program for seven years. And then I ended up going through a divorce and, um, I, I did slip back into, um, drinking and, um, that was about, I think about two years. So I've got three years again of sobriety and really what's changed for me. The most dramatic change, um, is that I'm taking my holistic health more seriously. And I was, so I was involved in that 12 step program and in the 12 steps, right. It talks about taking daily time for prayer and meditation. So I had taken time for prayer, um, but I'd never understood meditation or how that works. And so that's something that has been a daily part of my life over the last three years. And, um, I think like the power of it really is understated in, it definitely was understated in, um, my program, (laughs) 
because that is really how we start to change our our nervous system and our thoughts and that is really that quiet time and self-reflection allows you to see the patterns that are still impacting your life and really provides you with with a chance to rewire your brain right so and rewire your nervous system when you take time for meditation and and one of the things that I and one of the types of meditation I like to use is, excuse me, it's called mental, <clears throat> it's called mental rehearsal. Hmm. And so mental rehearsal is, is super fascinating because this has actually been um, studied by science and maybe you've, maybe you've heard about it, but um, people can actually build muscle mass with just mentally rehearsing lifting weights. And so they've, oh, they've yeah, studied this. Yeah. That. Yeah. So it's super fascinating, right? So this yeah. is, yes. So one of the forms of meditation I love to do is mental rehearsal. I think about the person that I want to be in the future. How does that person hold themselves? How does that person um, act in the face of embarrassment or in the face of anger when they're triggered? How do I want to be when I'm presented with those moments of challenge? How do I want to be as a mom when my kids are pushing my buttons? You know, so I will mentally rehearse successfully navigating these challenges because the challenges in life never go away. They're never yeah. going to go away. The triggers no. are always going to be there. But who do I want to be? What kind of person do I want to be? And I get to, you know, design that life for myself. And so that's been such a powerful tool for me. And then that that is really the foundation of my day. So I start with meditation. I end with meditation. I start with meditation. I think about who I want to be during the day. Um, and then I stay open to, you know, the world, the universe, bringing me whatever happens and staying um conscious and aware of the things I can and cannot control mm -hmm. and trying to have peace throughout the day. And then at the end of the day, I do some meditation that helps me reflect, you know, where did I, where did I succeed? Where did I fail? What do I want to do better? And, you know, it's helped me become resilient too, because I look at failures as just a normal part of being a human being, right? It doesn't mean anything about me as a person. We're all going to fail. And um, it's how we react in our failures that really determines the quality of life that, that we have. Yeah, I agree yeah. with you. Meditation is so powerful. And I started a meditation practice a little over a year ago in it's a daily meditation practice. Like you said, sometimes it's twice a day, um, but it really has, it has the power, like you said, to change your thoughts, which change your behavior, which changes your future. And it's such a powerful tool. And I think there's a lot of people um, like you, they were confused about it. Um, do I have to sit in a particular posture and, you know, kind of like a Buddhist monk, you know, does it have to be like that? And I always tell my clients, no, it doesn't have to be like that. Like whatever's comfortable. Um, but I love meditation and I am 
such a huge advocate for it. And I tell people, if you just try it every single day for at least 30 days, I guarantee you'll be a different person. Like just the power that it has is tremendous. So I love that you advocate for that too. That's awesome. Yeah, it it does have tremendous power. And I think, you know, so many people are like, oh, I tried it and it's uncomfortable or I didn't like it. And it is uncomfortable and you don't always like it, but sticking with it, sticking with that discomfort and learning how learning how to stick with discomfort is a life skill. Right? Yeah, it really is. <laughs> Get comfortable being uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then eventually you start to crave it and you realize that it's such an important part of your day. Oh yeah. I just know if I ever skip, there's been very few instances where I do, but you know, I wake up late and I'm running late and I can't fit it in. Like I am just a grouchy mess that day. It's Mm -hmm. just not good. (laughs) Yeah. And I I always think it's interesting to observe myself on those days too. Like, huh? Yeah. Right. Who am I today? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Definitely didn't meditate today. Mm -hmm. Not good. Um, all right. Let's see. What else? Anything else that you wanted to hit on? What about like some tips? What tips would you have? Um, I, I mean, I just love the holistic medicine, the mind body health thing. Like how can people start integrating that in their life. Like if somebody's interested, they have no idea what you're talking about. Like, what would be your advice on how to get started with that? Yeah, there's so many great and free resources available now. And um, one of the things that I used early on was an app called Insight Timer. Oh, yes. I love that. Yeah, they have tons and tons of free resources. And so I think that that's a great place to start if you're just looking for something that's um, free and easy. Yeah, they have courses, they've got yoga classes, they've got meditations. There's just, yeah. it's endless. Yeah, I yes. love Insight Timer. Yeah, it's a great resource. I personally, um, I read a book by Dr. Joe Dispenza, called mm-hmm. you are the placebo and that kind of sent me down one. a rabbit hole oh, and then there's he has another book called becoming supernatural and that one yeah that was really good. powerful yeah yeah so, so i've been uh, a fan of his work and i i use his meditations i purchased his meditations because i felt like it was an accountability thing for me like if i bought them then i knew that i would use them so that's, that's just part of, um, what I do. Yeah. Yeah. And then what about mindfulness? How do you incorporate that into daily life? Mm, Well, one of the things that, one of the tools that I love to teach my clients is intentional breathing because it is so powerful and it's always available to us, right? It's so easy. It's free. It's free. (laughs) Nobody's going to be looking at you. I, I teach uh, tapping too, but you know, that's, mm. uh, that's something that's a little bit weird to do out in public, but nobody yeah. is going to notice if you're just intentionally, you know, breathing calmly. So one of the concepts um, that I've heard people talk about in, in different ways, in different books and resources is 
this idea of that we have two states of being we're either contracted and tight or we're open and relaxed so you can think about that as like you're either in fight or flight or you're in the rest and digest there's different ways to think about it or frame it but I just kind of like these the simplicity of open or closed and when we can breathe intentionally like a calm person um, slowly inhaling and exhaling through the nose that helps us get into that open and relaxed state out of the closed state into the open state and that's something that I just practice all day long I try to notice when I'm tight and closed and if I am tight and closed I just breathe and the power of our breath is is it's so crazy how our breath impacts our body there's a a book called breath by like James Nestor I think is the author that book is really fascinating and um, he talks about how breathing can like impact your blood pressure and people that um, breathe more than I think it's like 10 breaths per minute chronically you know over days and weeks and months and years you actually can breathe yourself into osteoporosis because yeah because your body is going into an acidotic state and to to fix the problem our body has all of these amazing processes that keep try to keep us in balance and homeostasis so if you're um, breathing really shallow and really rapidly that makes your blood more acidic and then your hmm. body pulls uh, uh, phosphorus I believe from the bones to make your to to make your blood become less acidic so it's breaking wow. down your bones so yeah crazy it is crazy oh my god I didn't know that learned something new today it's wild Thank you Christy <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to add that to the list. Osteoporosis, yeah. right? breathe. Breathe. <laughs> That's so good. Well, anything else that you would like to share with our listeners today? I just want to encourage anybody, you know, anybody that's struggling or anybody that is wondering if they're curious about getting sober you know, make the leap. I'm, I'm promising you that it's worth it. And even if you make the leap and then, you know, you start drinking again, just know that you're among a group of people. It takes on average, what they say, like seven times for people to quit drinking or to give it up completely. You know, it, it, just stick with it and just keep doing the next best thing for you and you'll get there. You'll get there. Exactly. I love that. Thank you so much, my dear. It was a pleasure having you on the show today. Such good information. Thank you for sharing everything with us. Yeah. Thank you, Molly.